Welcome to Lung Cancer Concerted, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Leo. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dina Farber Cancer Institute and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. We are your hosts for this special episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Today, we highlight one of the seminal trials in thoracic oncology, ECOG-1594. This phase three trial examined first-line chemotherapy for non-small cell lung cancer. At the time this study was designed, chemotherapy had only recently been shown to be of benefit over best supportive care. In the trial, patients with untreated non-small cell lung cancer were randomized to receive one of four commonly used platinum doublet regimens, cisplatin plus paclitaxel, cisplatin plus gemcitabine, cisplatin plus docetaxel, or carboplatin with paclitaxel. The results were presented at the ASCO annual meeting in the year 2000. There was no significant difference in survival between the four regimens. There were some difference in toxicity, with carboplatin and plaquitaxel having less toxicity, establishing this backbone for future studies with ECOC. ECOC 1594 was the largest study in no small cell lung cancer at the time with over 1,100 patients. Today, we will go behind the scenes with some of the authors and engineers of that trial to learn about it, the design, the place, and how it changed the history of the treatment of no small cell lung cancer. We are joined by four of the co-authors of that pivotal trial, all of whom are recognized as pillars of the thoracic oncology community. The lead author and principal investigator, Dr. Joan Schiller, who at the time was at the University of Wisconsin, serving as chair of the Lung Cancer Committee of ECOG. She was recently awarded the Paul A. Bunn Jr. Scientific Award from the ISLC. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Schiller. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Lewin. Pleasure to be here. We have Dr. Chandra Balani, who was leading the thoracic oncology program at the University of Pittsburgh at the time and currently serves as the deputy director for the Penn State Hershey Cancer Institute. Welcome, Dr. Balani. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Also with us is Dr. Corey Langer, who was Director of Thoracic Oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center when the trial was designed, now at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Medical Oncology Chair of NRG. Welcome, Dr. Langer. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. And we have Dr. Alan Sandler. Dr. Sandler was at Indiana University when the study launched before a storied career at Vanderbilt and OHSU. He's now the President, Head of Global Development Oncology at Xilab after serving as the Global Head of Product Development Oncology at Genentech. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Sandler. Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen. When ECOD 1594 was designed, the standard treatment for advanced no small cell lung cancer was quite different to what we know today. Can you paint a picture for our listeners of what standard lung cancer therapy was back then? Sure. You know, you have to remember that at that time, there was no targeted therapy or immunotherapy. There was just chemotherapy. And at that time, we were just discovering that chemotherapy could, in fact, help lung cancer patients survive longer. 
albeit very modestly and unfortunately with significant toxicities. I remember at that time we were dealing with studies like a study that was published in JCO in 1988, the RAP trial. And that was just six years before 1594 was conceived. That was a three-arm trial in which the best supportive care arm had a median survival of 17 weeks. The cyclophosphamide, adriamycin, and cisplatinum arm had a median survival of 20 weeks. And the Vindus and platinum arm had a median survival of 32 weeks. So that's what we were dealing with. I have to say at the time, Steve, it was pretty bleak. We had debates. I remember back to an ECOG meeting, which is where this study originated. Should we even treat lung cancer? It was a wonderful debate. It was between Larry Einhorn and uh, Phil Bonomi. And you can guess who took which side. Phil Bonomi was on the pro and actually Larry was on the con side. And this debate actually emerged, it's about 26, 27 years ago, I think it was around 94, 95, in the context of really poor outcomes. Our standard treatment before the emergence of paclitaxel was atopicide and platinum, which didn't work very well. It was very toxic. Response rates were under 20% at best, and this is using the rudimentary uh, imaging that we did at the time, often just chest x-rays. PETs hadn't even emerged yet as part of our standard. And uh, responses were seldom durable. Exactly. The times were totally different. When I started my career, the median survival was six months based on the studies which compared chemotherapy to best supportive care. Dr. Sandler, how did the treatment landscape at the time set the stage for ECO-1594? Yes, and yeah, thanks for allowing me to reminisce from about uh, uh, 20 years or so ago when I had a little more hair and it was a little darker. But so at that particular time, you know, chemotherapy was actually evolving into something that went from, it was anathema to patients back in the early 90s or so when I finished my fellowship and was then getting some airtime, if you will, as uh, the newer agents came out, the ones that you mentioned partnering with a platinum agent. And there was, because of also the newer antiemetics, there was better tolerance of this. And so it was getting established that, you know, chemotherapy wasn't so terrible and provided a survival advantage. So more patients were actually being treated. Those more patients with the diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer were actually being treated. It was not that uncommon in the early 90s for many patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer in certain parts of the country to not receive any therapy at all and just get receive supportive care because of the lack of of evidence for survival advantage. So that had changed, and that led to the concept of this particular study as as to, you know, was any one of those particular regimens superior to the others? And at that time, the burning questions of, of the day were all related to chemotherapy. You know, were two drugs better than one? Were three drugs better than two? Did you need platinum? And of course, the ultimate question was, which regimen was best? And that's what 1594 was designed to answer. Now, this was a comparison of four platinum doublet regimens with a one-to-one to to -to one-to-one randomization. Any comments on the study design? Um, Yeah, it was for patients with stage 3B, and by that meaning pleural or pericardial effusion only, or stage 4, non-small cell lung cancer. As you said, the primary objective was overall survival of the three experimental arms compared with the control arm, which was 
platinum paclitaxel. Um, patients were randomized one to uh, one to either the control arm or the three experimental arms: cisplatinum, gemcitabine, cisplatinum, um, docetaxel, or carboplatin paclitaxel. And differences in response rate and time to progression and toxicity were secondary objective, uh, objectives. We all had our, our study arm. Uh, Pat Carbo is mine. Uh, uh, Chandra Balani's was docetaxel and cisplatin. Alan Sandler was in charge of Gemsys, and uh, Joan was in charge of the uh, reference arm, uh, the 24-hour uh, paclitaxel cisplatin arm as employed in the uh, prior. The study design here had four arms, which isn't typical of most of the studies we use. Why four arms here? The reason there were four arms, it was actually a very difficult decision to make at that point in time. The regiments that had uh, comparison arms Prior to ECOG 1594, had single agent cisplatin versus, versus the combination of these uh, new agents with cisplatin. And all had shown that combination regimens are better than single agent cisplatin alone. So it was very difficult to make a decision whether to give cisplatin tamcitabine, cisplatin vinorelbine, cisplatin uh, irinotecan, or cisplatin and taxol. And then there was carboplatin and taxol out of the blue becoming the most commonly used regimen without an FDA approval. So we decided that in order to answer the question once and for all, we'll do a large study. That was probably the first largest study done in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, include all four arms of the study. All right. Let's talk about these four different arms. The control arm here was cisplatin plus plaquitaxel. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with paclitaxel as a chemotherapy agent, but I think very few will have given it as a 24-hour infusion. This was, <laughs> this was an inpatient regimen? You know, it started out as a 24-hour infusion. Uh, when, it was begin- when it was first given as a single agent, not in lung cancer, but in ovarian cancer, folks were hospitalized, often in step-down units with c- continuous uh, cardiac monitoring with ECG monitoring because it was known to be associated with bradycardia. And it did. Uh, We saw people brady down to 48, 52. They were all asymptomatic. It was total overkill, but it was uh, done out of an abundance of caution. We quickly realized that uh, paclitaxel was an incredibly malleable drug. You could give it as a three-hour infusion. Uh, Neuropathy was worse. Myelosuppression was actually less pronounced. You could shorten it to one hour. And we certainly uh, started looking at that. Rather than three hour, we made the jump from 24 hours to one hour in our phase one and phase two studies. Again, neuropathy was worse, but myelosuppression was less pronounced. We started experimenting with weekly dosing, uh, which is I personally prefer because I think it cuts down on the neuropathy and it's pretty standard in breast cancer. Here too, both myelosuppression and neuropathy were reduced. And there are many of us who believed in this metronomic effect that Perhaps the drug was more efficacious if it was given weekly. And then in breast cancer, there, paclitaxel was also used as a 96-hour infusion. We put in a port and a travanol infuser, and people would go home with their paclitaxel pumps. So you remember, we didn't have that many drugs to work with at the time. So we were looking at all sorts of different ways to deliver the drugs in the hope that we would enhance efficacy. There were three experimental arms in ECOT 1594. Carboplatin plus plaquitaxel, which was relatively new, cisplatin plus docetaxel, and the LAR 
last arm added was cisplatin plus gensadivine. Dr. Sandler, you have experience with that regimen, correct? Yes. So for me, I was um, had been the, the lead investigator and subsequently lead author for the uh, gemcitabine plus cisplatin combination. It was done, again, back in the days at, uh, when I was part of Indiana University with the Hoosier Oncology Group led that with a company-sponsored study by Eli Lilly. And Dr. Einhorn had uh, graciously uh, allowed me to be the, the first author on that. I was probably, I think when it started, maybe about three years or so into my uh, faculty, my first faculty role at Indiana University. So I was, again, then the lead author. And that was a study that, interestingly enough, was cisplatin plus or minus gemcitabine. Again, that tells you about uh, back in that day when a single agent was allowed to be the control arm. Single agent cisplatin was allowed to be the, uh, the control arm. It allowed for, obviously, a very pure study, if you will, for, re- for both scientific and regulatory purposes, which I, you know, was able to isolate the benefit of gemcitabine in that setting, which showed improvements in uh, response rate, progression-free survival, and overall survival. And so that was the uh, background for that combination of being part of the study. However, if I may, allow me to ramble for a little bit more. The original design for ECOG 1594 was actually going to include a, another doublet, CPT-11, irenotecan, plus cisplatin. That was another regimen that, although much of its study was in Japan, there was uh, data in the U.S. And Russell DeVore was at Vanderbilt at the time and had done some work with that combination. And that combination, that was going to be one of the four regimens. And gemcitabine was not originally going to be part of it. So we were quite close to having cisplatin irinotecan as one of our standard arms of the time. Absolutely. It would have been cisplatin and irinotecan if the company at that point in time, irinotecan was Upjohn's drug. Upjohn then combined with Pharmacia, and now it is Pfizer. So Upjohn, which was located in Kalamazoo at that point in time, we had long conversations with that group, but they did not agree to put cisplatin irinotecan into 1594. That was a fell out. And just in a day with a stroke of luck, cisplatin cytobine became the fourth arm of the study. And that brought me into the fold as one of the co-investigators since I was sort of had the experience with that gemcitabine cisplatin combination. And the, the stats were based on improvement in survival by 33%. So they wanted to see an improvement in survival from nine months to 12 months in the trial. And that was actually a high bar to attain because most of the clinical trials, even with combination regimens, had shown a median survival of eight to nine months. We could not go beyond 1,200 patients at that point in time. That's why the investigational arms were compared to the control arm, and they were not compared to each other, actually, in the study. That would have required 300 more patients. Dr. Balani, this was an NCI-sponsored study, but there was still a need to negotiate with industry. Is that correct? If you go back to the 80s and 90s, most of the clinical trials which led to approval of the drugs were done by the NCI. NCI was the, the group which did all the studies and all agents got approved. The industry was not involved to a greater extent 
in getting FDA approvals for uh, the regimens. So if you go back and look at NSABP, who did the trials in breast cancer, they were very simple studies asking one question, one at a time, and they were able to do more than 30 randomized clinical trials at that point in time, and all answered the questions and changed the life of a woman with breast cancer. So lung cancer folks also adopted the same thing, but the the rate-limiting step was the drug. The drug was supplied by the industry, and they had to have some sort of an agreement with the NCI so that NCI could do, or ECOG, or the cooperative groups related to the NCI, could do these randomized trials. Were there any challenges in getting our colleagues from industry to support a study like this? I'm sure there were challenges, but as a low man on the totem pole, I don't think I was privy to all those challenges. I know that we were in continual discussion and negotiation with BMS, with uh, Sanofi and Lilly, but the uh, I suspect the major challenges aligning the cooperative group and the NCI and CTEP with industry, making sure the study was feasible, that work was being done by Dave Johnson and Bob Comas, uh, God rest his soul. Bob was the chair of ECOG at the time. He was a major cheerleader with respect to this trial. And he certainly had the presence and persona and personality to uh, make sure a trial of this sort could go forward. And I am certain that Dave Johnson had uh, an equal effect at that point. That's where Dr. Johnson excelled. I don't know how he did it, but he did. It must have been his Southern gentlemanly charm. Dr. Schiller, things have changed over the years. When we review ongoing trial data now, it's typically via teleconference, video conference, online case report forms, and electronic databases. I suspect that that was not the case for ECOD 1594. Is that correct? It was most definitely not the case for 1594. The reason that uh, there were four PIs or co-PIs Um, You might think that that meant that each PI or co-PI was assigned a specific arm, but that's not what happened. Um, The reason there were four of us was simply because it was thought, and I agree, that the paperwork involved with the 1,200 patient trial was too much for one person. And therefore, we essentially uh, split it up. It was all on paper. We all took turns going down to Boston to the ECOG headquarters to review those darn case report forms. And even though they had already been reviewed by the ECOG data monitoring staff, it was very, very tedious. And you were reviewing paper forms, is that right? Uh, That's right. Yes, that's right. It was uh, everything was, you know, handwritten notes for the most part, not even typed, right? These are just case report forms uh, that were without the the small e, (laughs) no electronic. These were just the CRFs that we had to review, you know, reviewing whether it be eligibility, toxicity, was the, uh, you know, the, the date that the therapy was began, was it, you know, after the signed informed consent, et cetera, all of the things that we, of course, uh, uh, take for granted nowadays. It was a rigorous process of uh, looking at all the CRFs, completing them, signing them, getting all the queries done. It was a big task. ECOG used to put us up in this uh, sort of flea-bitten hotel on Beacon Street in Brookline, which was right near ECOG headquarters. 
And Joan did a lot of sleuthing and, um, you know, bed and breakfasts weren't that common back then, but she found a wonderful bed and breakfast in uh, the heart of Brookline. And I had uh, lived in Brookline for four years during medical school. So I knew my way around the town and it was, let's put it this way, it was a major upgrade uh, from, uh, and no no more expensive. Yeah. In fact, I think ECOT saved money on the uh, the BMD. So it was very innovative on Joe. One of the things I most appreciate about the uh, reviewing these uh, CRFs and are generally quarterly or at least every six month uh, visits to Boston. We would rotate in terms of who went. Dr. Schiller, you presented these data at the plenary session of ASCO in the year 2000. Can you tell us about giving that presentation and maybe how those results were received? Yeah, I remember there was a lot of anticipation for the results. I remember getting pumps, so to speak, by pharmaceutical representatives who would say things to me like, I hear that Arm X is the winner, even though the results had not been released. They were truly trying to trick me into saying something. Very, very nervous. It was, you know, a premium podium presentation at ASCO. They had two additional auditoriums reserved because the one was not enough. It was a very nerve-wracking time for me. ASCO has always been a heady experience. I've always looked forward to ASCO from the time I was a fellow to the current time. It's not just what happens at the meeting, it's what happens around the meeting. And sometimes uh, your best study ideas come from parallel meetings that are not officially part of ASCO. But for me, it was a thrill to know that a regimen that I had some part of development, uh, Pat Carbo, was making it to the big time, to the uh, plenary session at ASCO. My ego is not so big that I need to be the primary presenter. I mean, this study, Joan, we've sort of owned it equally, but Joan Schiller was the PI overall of the study. And I just, I felt it was a heady rush, basically, to see that uh, presentation at the main plenary session, even though, you know, ostensibly it was a negative trial. Remember, the median survival in this trial is bad by current standards. It was only eight months, which really underscores how much progress we've made since that time. As mentioned, the discussant at the ASCO plenary for ECOT 1594 was Dr. Francis Shepard, who was kind enough to join us for this podcast as well. Dr. Shepard is a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. She holds the Scott Taylor Chair in Lung Cancer Research at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. She's a past president of the ISLC and previously sat on the board of directors for ASCO and EORTC. Dr. Shepard, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's a great pleasure to be here. Now, Dr. Shepard, you were among the first to really see the results of ECOG 1594. Can you remember your initial reaction to the data? Well, let me just put it in context for you. Um, we had had really inadequate chemotherapy for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And when I started my career, there was a pervasive belief that the results were so bad and the treatment so toxic that advanced non-small cell lung cancer patients should not be treated at all. And we had regimens such as CAP, which were based on doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, Anitoposide and uh, cisplatin, and their results were modest at best. And we called those the first and second generation agents. 
But in the 80s, a host of new agents came along, and we called those the third generation agents. And we really thought that they were associated with higher response rates and better survival. And hand in hand with that came better support of care as well, so that patients could be treated without severe nausea and vomiting, and they could be treated as outpatients, and we didn't have to admit them for very high-dose platinum regimens. So the third-generation agents were very exciting for us. And at the ASCO plenary, I divided the talk into the lean years and the fat years, going back to the Old Testament biblical uh, reference. And our drugs in the lean years were really not at all effective, but we had the excitement of all these new agents. So what did ECOG 1594 do? It compared the new agents for us. So you asked what my thoughts were when I saw the results. Well, they were sobering and perhaps even a little bit disappointing. Even with these exciting new agents, these platinum-based regimens only led to response in about 20% of the patients. And there was really no clear winner. There was not one of these regimens that really outstripped the others. There were some minor differences, minor differences in response, and minor but not very clinically relevant differences in progression-free survival and overall survival. But what did that do? It left us with options. It left us with many options that we had not had before this time. As the invited discussant, you helped frame those results for the audience during the plenary session. You had a slight presentation but this was way before the days of PowerPoint, correct? Can you tell us about those slides and how do you prepare for such an important discussion and presentation? Absolutely. These were slides that we made up and carried physically with us. And in fact, I was so nervous for the plenary session that I had two sets of slides in case one might get lost. These were before the days of electronic presentations. Ah, yes. Uh, Good old-fashioned slides. (laughs) I think PowerPoint was finally emerging. It wasn't uh, quite that long ago, but we had glass slides or uh, non-glass slides. You had, in PowerPoint, of course, you can make changes right up until the moment of your presentation. These slides were all pre-processed. You couldn't make any changes up to the meeting. And uh, (laughs) I hate to confess this, but I still have slides from that era. I have not had the courage or uh, my wife wants to part with all of this stuff. I still have not just the slides, but the the carousels (laughs) from all of these presentations. Is there anything that stands out to you from the ASCO presentation, Dr. Shepard? You know, presenting at the plenary session of ASCO is a gut-wrenching thing to do. You're very, very, very nervous. There is no greater presentation scenario 
than the plenary session of ASCO with thousands and thousands of people watching you, watching every word. And I will tell you the little scenario that was rather nice is how well they look after you. ASCO knows that all of the presenters are very nervous. And so you're taken behind the curtain. They're calming you down as much as possible. They're giving you water to drink because your mouth is absolutely dry and parched. And you know what I remember out of that? I remember just how kind all the ASCO staff were behind the curtain before the session. I look at ECOG 1594 as a very significant trial for lung cancer, what I grew up with. From the inside, uh, now with a bit of hindsight, what's your perspective on the significance of this trial? I think the trial, it was one of the largest trials ever done in non-small cell lung cancer. And if you look at the people who were involved with the trial, it was significant. The discussants at the session, the presenters, and we all as PIs, and it was a very strong study which paved the way for treatment of lung cancer after the year 2000 when it was uh, presented. I think what the study did was to solidify treatment choices in different parts of the world. The United States was at that time very committed to the paclitaxel and carboplatin regimen. Now, this study importantly showed that more is not better, more is just more and more expensive, and that very high doses of paclitaxel were not necessary. So that was a good observation to come out of this. But for the United States, it solidified the use of paclitaxel and carboplatin as the regimen of choice and a regimen against which all other treatments would be compared. Oh, I I imagine my colleagues may have mentioned, I've usually referred to, you know, there've been comments that were made about Coke versus Pepsi, but I always talked about that chemotherapy was very geographic, much like beer. And that beer that was enjoyed in the Northeast was felt to be awful beer in the Southwest. And so these regimens came to be very much based upon prior experience Absolutely nothing was on the computer. So things now that we would point and click or sign off on electronically, it was all hand enumerated, hand reviewed. We'd fill out forms saying, uh, indicating whether treatment was compliant. The community was using these regimens. Probably the majority were using PAC Carbo. And that we could certainly look at the stats from that era and see if that was the case. And I think this study did nothing more than validate whatever people were using. If they were a, a cis-gem aficionado, ah, certainly the data would support that. If they preferred a docetaxel combination, again, the data would support that. I don't think anybody at this point was using 24-hour paclitaxel. So that, that regimen pretty much fell by the wayside. But the other three were popular and frankly have remained popular in various quarters. Uh, Many of us uh, readily adopted the docetaxel cisplatin regimen in the adjuvant setting, in part because of neoadjuvant data by Bedeker and others showing major uh, pathologic responses and PCR rates of about 20%. So when I left Fox Chase for Penn, 
the docetaxel cisplatin combo is my go-to adjuvant regimen. Uh, not anymore, but certainly at the time in the early, in the mid-aughts, I guess, uh, we're talking about 06, 07, 08. Tracy Evans and I made a wholesale shift from venerolidine cisplat to docetaxel cisplatin. So these regimens, again, even though the study focused on stage four, recurrent or newly diagnosed metastatic disease, they were being exported to other venues. Dr. Schiller, what is your perspective on this study? I think it marked the beginning of the end for new chemotherapy regimens for lung cancer. Now, although several other drugs did come out after that, I don't think anyone at that time now expected that the new drugs to have a major impact on survival. Instead, everyone knew we now had to work on a whole new paradigm. I would also say that even though the results did not show a marked superiority of one regimen over another, I think it did seal the role of chemotherapy in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer, as will be, it will be the backbone of future regimens as they go on. The things that I remember most is there was so much excitement around this study It was the first time a large study like this, comparing multiple different chemotherapy regions from multiple different companies, had been attempted. And I do think we came up with an answer that the question, we answered the question that most regimens are roughly the same. I would also like to say that I'm very grateful for Dr. Johnson and the rest of the ECOG Thoracic Committee for giving me a chance to lead this trial. I developed a lot of very long-lasting, excellent relationships with my co-investigators, the ECOG staff, and other members of the ECOG Thoracic Committee. It was a very exciting time. We could go on forever, but we're out of time. We would like to thank all our listeners, and we especially would like to thank our prestigious guests for taking the time to speak with us today and follow the important work they have done in the field. Dr. John Schiller. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Dr. Chandra Balani. It was great to be with you, Stephen. And uh, I think that it was a great study, and uh, my collaborators and co-authors on the trial need to be commended to complete the trial in the late 80s and late 90s and move the field forwards. And it was a great pleasure to work with them and work with you all at the present point in time. Dr. Alan Sandler. Yes, and Stephen, thank you so much. I mean, this was a lot of fun and a, a real pleasure to take part in this and to sort of reminisce about something about 20 years ago. And it's exciting, actually, to see where we've gone in oncology in general and, and thoracic oncology specifically from the days of comparing various uh, chemotherapy regimens to moving on beyond into, uh, you know, cancer immunotherapy, targeted therapy, and the improvements that have been made in lung cancer overall, improving um, survival and quality of life in in patients. And I've just been happy to be a a small part of that. And Corey Langer? Goodbye, Steve. It's been a privilege to reminisce and uh, discuss the implications of ECOG 1594. Certainly a trip down memory lane. And of course, Dr. Frances Shepard. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be part of this history. Our cooperative groups in Canada were not part of the trial, 
but this gives me the chance to feel a little bit part of it as I reminisce about the ASCO presentation. And that's it for this special seminal trial episode of Lung Cancer Concert. Don't forget to like the podcast and to share with your colleagues and friends. You can join the conversation at islc.org or on Twitter at islc. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.